0: Hello, hello. Thank you very much, everyone who's already here. I appreciate you swinging by for today's fifth episode of the Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons story stream. Um, We'll give it a few minutes before I really jump into the story, give people a chance to show up. Um, But, if you're already here, thank you very much. Uh, I saw that uh, we had one post already, Molten Snow 37 Thank you very much for stopping by. I appreciate it. Pretty excited. Uh, We're getting to a big point in the story here very, very soon. Um, And once we uh, hit that, things uh, speed up a little bit. So I'm I'm pretty excited. We're we're getting dangerously close to the uh, part of the story that I have a lot more detailed notes of. So I'm going to have a lot more. uh, I guess you'd say exciting, direct stuff. Like right now, a lot of the story that I'm telling is a a lot of an overview and pretty much all of it directly from memory although I've told the story so many times um, we're getting to the point that I still have all my actual written notes Because I've mentioned this many times, I had a had a basement flooding and I lost a lot of my early stuff that I worked on in the early years uh, so I had to remake a lot of it and except the story notes and such are all from memory but um, I have to my left here, you can't see it, but a bookshelf just full of binders and notebooks of all the story, so very soon we are going to get to the point where I will be getting to read to you the same things that I read to the players while we were playing. Um, Because most of it is just like I'm doing here now. I'm telling the story, but I would pre-write certain segments, like descriptive. You walk into a room, this is what you see, or as you know specific story beats would very often uh, <clears throat> have a small couple paragraphs or maybe even a couple pages of a story intro that I would give to them. So I'm excited to get to read to you the same thing I read to them. Um, that way you you get to kind of get part of the story in the, in the same uh, manner that they did. So that should be pretty cool. Like I said, I always like to give it about five or ten minutes before I really jump into the story and give people a chance to show up because I know we always have a couple stragglers. Um... I will mention, and I'll probably mention it several times tonight, but I'm gonna throw it out here. Uh, the Merged World streams that you're seeing here now are also now available um, on iTunes as podcast. I got that approved this week, uh, so the first four episodes of the Merged World story uh, stream that I've already done have been converted to an audio file. Uh, so if you go to iTunes and you do a search for Merged Worlds, uh, you will now pull up the audio version of these streams uh, listed as a podcast. So. I'm uh, pretty excited by that. Uh, it's free, of course. There's there's no cost to download it, uh, but it's just another way that I get to share the story with folks, and and maybe uh, some people might have an easier time listening to it while driving or working out or whatever uh, than they would actually sit and watch me do a video for two hours. So uh, I was really excited to get that step done. I am looking to move it on to um, other platforms as well, um, like iHeartRadio, Spotify, and uh, Google Play. Um, but the setup for that is a little bit different um so I'm still working the kinks out of that but hopefully I'll have those up here in the next week or two as well and and if so I'll definitely announce that as well but uh yeah it's pretty exciting the first four are already up there um the goal is to do this one every other Sunday and then tomorrow being Monday of course I will convert it to audio and try to have it up by the next day each, each week so people aren't too far behind if they're just doing the audio podcast um so if this is uh I guess you say if you're listening to this uh as an audio podcast, welcome as well. Thank you very much. I'm excited to get to share it with you as well. Um, There are times during the stream that I will reference specific photos of maybe actors, musicians, models, people that I'm using that I use to represent different characters so that you who are seeing or, or, or hearing the video can see in your mind the same thing that I see when I'm talking about a character. I find it makes it a little bit easier if we're all picturing the same thing. So um, while I do show the photos here on the video stream, if you are listening to this as an audio podcast, um, anytime I put a picture up here, I also post it on my website, OnlyDraven.com. If you go there under the characters tab at the very top, and the navigation tab, uh, that will take you to any pictures of any of the characters that I've posted. Uh, So if you are listening to this and not watching it, uh, you still have the option to see the photos that I'm sharing as well. I'm very likely going to add another page, uh, because we're going to get to a point here where I'm going to be able to show things like maps and schematics of dungeons and drawings of specific weapons and things of that nature that have been put together over the years. Um, So I'm definitely going to try to share that stuff as well, not just here on the video stream, uh, but on the website, so audio listeners uh, have the ability to go back and reference that at any time. Alright, so a brief recap, I guess, of where we left off last episode. Um, Our party had split into two, two groups, uh, one going east, one going west. Uh, Both of them have a magical necklace that was given to them by the demigod Zoltan, who said, if you spin these, it'll do a little light shining towards the direction of the closest artifact to you. And the party had reached a point that when they did that, pointed two directions at once so they felt it was in their best interest because they knew time was of the essence, if you will uh, that it would be best for them to split. So our party has split with four going east and four going west. Uh, We started with the party going east uh, which is the group, uh, which was Willow who is our elven druid Darsh, our minotaur warrior, Shadow our elven ranger and Fig, our gnome warrior. Um as they traveled, um, they came across two of Rafe Fireman, Firemoon's old companions, um, Smalsius Early and Rohan, uh, Smalsius being a very short human, you say, warrior rogue, and, uh, Rohan being a cleric, dwarven cleric of the mountain god. <clears throat> and so, uh, they are out searching, looking for their lost friend, Rafe, see whatever came of him, um... But they had also been given a message by Zoltan to help the party. Uh, so they have shown up and they led uh, our group of Willow, Darsh, Fig, and Shadow uh, back to Firemoon Kingdom, where we got to meet. the... the most of the party members had survived, um, except for, unfortunately, their uh, half elven mage had passed away uh, during the final battle between Rafe and his brother before the merge, or that led to the merge. Uh, we learned that Tabork lost his arm in that battle, uh, but that upon returning, uh, he took over the position of regent, and that he's basically running the Kingdom Firemoon until they can either find Rafe or find proof that Rafe is past. Um, they agreed to help the party, <coughs> providing them uh, with the one mar- magical artifact that they had in their possession, and then uh, at that point, the party then were led to an opening Uh, deep within the hidden rooms or hidden catacombs underneath Castle Firemoon uh, to an opening down into the Underdark uh, where they proceeded to go down, their little necklace showing them that direction. Uh, They spent weeks just going deeper, deeper into the ground um, at one point coming across a dark dwarf uh, kingdom, if you will. Uh, They had to sneak through that and were successfully able to do so. And then very near the end of our episode last week, they had come across a remnant or part of a drow kingdom that had come through the merge. Um, And their their necklace let them know that one of the artifacts was directly inside somewhere in that compound. Um, Darsh had managed to sneak in with a bunch of slaves, prisoners, uh, because there were several minotaurs in that group. And he managed to make his way in. He was kind of hanging out in the slave pens. The other three were waiting to see word from him if he was able to find it or if he needed help. Uh, and upon returning to their camp, they realized that their new little companion, the Gully Dwarf Moog, uh, who was saved by them earlier in the adventure, um, and had become kind of like a little sidekick to uh, Fig, um, Moog had gone missing, and the assumption was since none of their stuff was taken, he would wandered off and had wandered into the drow kingdom himself. And so now... The remaining three, Shadow, Willow, and Fig, were in a situation where they they were like, well, we have to go in after him, but, you know, we're kind of at a stuck spot because there's really not a way for any of us to blend in like Darst did. There were no elven slaves by any means. Drow were going to pretty much slaughter them on the spot. And then a gnome, they might have kept a slave, but they didn't see any others, so he was probably going to stand out like a sore thumb. So itch. So... Oh, I'm not sorry. It wasn't Shadow. It was Mercy. I apologize. It's completely off-wrong me. It wasn't Shadow. It was Mercy that was in the group. Shadow's in the other group. I'm saying the wrong warrior there. It was Mercy that was in the group. And Mercy, of course, had the toughest time under there because she is the only one of the entire group who doesn't have some form of infrovision. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, she does not have the ability to see in the dark. Or everyone else does. Even Moog has a very limited infrovision. Um, but... They're all down. They've been down there for a long time. So Mercy is uh, getting a little stir-crazy at this point because there's a lot of times where she's just in pitch blackness and silence where, you know, it could drive a person crazy. Um, But, you know, you do what you got to do. She's a pretty strong warrior type, so she's managed to buckle on through it. Apologize if you see me drinking a lot today. I'm starting to come down with a little bit of a cold. Uh, So... I have some throat lozenges here, and I got several beverages in the fridge ready to go, so if my voice starts to get raspy, I may have to wet up a little bit there. But that's where we left off with the last episode, uh, so I guess we're going to go ahead and just jump right into that. Um, but before I continue, I did want to say thank you to everybody who stopped by, everyone who's been listening or watching the podcast both on YouTube and uh, now on iTunes. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, I've already received several high ratings on iTunes, and I definitely appreciate that, people who've been enjoying the stream or the story. Um, also, uh, I'd like to say that we have a new member. <laughs> we had a new person join our memberships. I logged on today to find that, uh, so I appreciate that. Only Draven Gaming memberships are available on YouTube, come with a bunch of different perks, um, and I definitely appreciate anytime someone feels it worth their time to participate in that program, so I was happy to say we had a new member. Okay, so... Where we left off, again, the party was just kind of, uh, our three remaining, which is Mercy, Willow, and Fig, uh, were like, oh, what are we gonna do? Moog has wandered off into the, this Drow Kingdom, that is, at this point, has no name, and Fig is freaking out, because he's like, they find him, they're just gonna kill him. And, you know, most races won't tolerate a Gully Dwarf, let alone the Drow. The Drow just kill just about anybody, especially, uh, someone who's managed to make it into their uh, into their kingdom this far deep, most races don't come down here. <clears throat> they have a little bit of uh, issue with dark dwarves and dark gnomes or deep gnomes and such. Are uh, some of the more common underground creatures they may fight. Alithid colonies, things like that, mine flayers. But gully dwarves don't normally make it this far down. They wouldn't be able to survive a trip of this nature without protection, like the group they're in there moves in right now. So. They immediately like, okay, well, we have to go in. Time is of the essence. We can't just wait here for, um, for Darsh to say something. Do we all go in? Do some of us go in? Does somebody stay here in case Darsh need help? They're very quickly trying to figure out what they're going to do. And it's, de- it's decided that Fig is going to go in first by himself. Fig is the smallest physically. Um, he's going to be their best warrior in this situation. Mercy is actually uh, a bit better of a warrior than Fig from just overall damage and, and capabilities in combat solo. Uh, but with her vision limitations, there's no way she can go wandering around with a torch. Everybody's going to, the Drought Kingdom will pick up on her in a heartbeat. So it's determined that Fig's going to go in himself. Uh, being the smallest, he has uh, really good improvision. He's also very comfortable underground. He was raised by dwarves. Uh, so he's very comfortable in this situation. They think he might be the best bet to try to get in and get Moog out. The other two are going to stay in the little cave alcove that, that they have, uh, hopefully waiting for um, a sign from Darsh or Fig, depending on what they need to do there. So unlike their original plan, Fig's like, I, I'm going in. So he you know, tries to leave anything of value he doesn't need, money and such. He does take his weapon, of course. He's not foolish enough to go in there unarmed, but um, he didn't use a shield, he uses a war hammer, but anything that would make noise, metal armor, things of that nature, coins, other than a small dagger in his boot uh, that was given to him by his dwarven father, Uh, he has just that in his hammer, and he goes into the drowned kingdom, or, again, when I say kingdom, it's it's really just the size of one or two drow household compounds. Drow kingdoms are usually very vast and large, and this one's much smaller. Um, and just from seeing how it looks, where the rock face are, you can tell that not there was clearly more of it at one point, but not all of it came through the merge. Uh, so what is there is still pretty daunting and a good size. So Fig goes making his way in, and he's trying to figure out you know, the best route, because with it being a Drow Kingdom underground, even they have a waking and sleeping schedule. There would be something you would consider night. Um, and that's, you know, it's hard to tell what that is, but you just from watching you could see when there's more people out than there are less. And uh, that's when Dar- or, uh, Fig tries to make his move in. And he starts making his way into the Drow Kingdom looking for any sign of Moog. Um, especially footprints. Because Moog is in no way sneaky. So Moog would have just stumbled all in. And Fig is kind of kicking himself because his thought is, you know, Moog got worried about him or went looking for Figgy because he looks up to Fig so much that maybe he thought Fig was in there and he went to go find him. And so Fig is, is blaming himself should anything happen to the lad. Um, so there. He goes slowly making his way in. He's trying to be quick as possible, but you know, he's still trying to be careful. It's no good getting caught. It's not going to save Moog, so he's trying to move, stay hidden. <clears throat> Fortunately, on the outskirts that they're at, there's not a lot of drow traffic, and it's the evening time where there's less. There's just minimal guards, but drow are very, very good underground. They spend their whole life here, unlike the other races, so um, Fig knows he's got to be extra careful. Um, At this same time, Darsh is still hanging out in the slave pens area of the drow compound that he was taken into, and uh, he had found out previously that there was a occasionally, um, they would choose different, they would come out, the drow would choose different slaves to come in and work inside the keep. Um, Sometimes just as protection, or as as guards, so on and so forth. Um, And Darsh trying to play his hand right, tried to make sure he was one of the ones chosen for that position. So Darsh makes a point of well not trying to be obvious, making sure that he's hanging out more around the uh, <clears throat> primary entryway in, the way that the drow would be coming from, if they were to be coming into the slave bins. The other Minotaur that are there, you know, think he's insane. Who in the right mind would try to get into a slave pen. They've been dreaming of getting out of a slave pen for quite a while. Um, and Most of the people that are there segregate themselves. Like I said before, there were some goblins in there, maybe a couple dark dwarves, things of that nature. Everything that's there has information. It'd be useless if they didn't. Uh, Molten Snow says, I love the story. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, but uh, everybody there kind of stays to their own group. So Darsh in with the Minotaurs, They clearly think he's insane. Again, why would you sneak in here? And He he doesn't want to say, hey, there's a magical artifact I'm here to get. But he does say, hey, I'm here. I'm not alone. There are others. And if we're able to pull off what we're wanting to do here, we may be able to help everyone escape. Hope is not something you see a lot in uh, (laughs) a drow slave encampment. Most of them don't live long to begin with, uh, just because drow are not not the friendliest of slave keepers. They, uh, they usually will run or work their <clears throat> slaves into the ground kind of thing. So um, that's why some of the more hardier races, Minotaur, Goblins, Hobgoblins, things of that nature, Dwarves, they'll last the longest, especially the ones that are used to being underground. Um, minotaurs are kind of prized as a slave because they make really good guards. Um, most of them understand that If they were to fail in their duty, the guards just going to kill them anyways. So most mentors will throw themselves at anyone trying to get past them, Um, because if they succeed, they may get to live a little longer, may get treated a little better. Uh, But if they fail, it's it's only going to be a painful death. So the other mentor, like, all right, well, okay, if there's a way of getting out of here, we get that. Uh, You just let us know what's what to do. He's like, all right, I got to get inside. So I need to be chosen. So they're like, okay, well, we'll kind of bumble over here a little bit. You hang out in that area. If they do come out, they usually come out and take several in to do different things, like uh, cleaning, guard duty at night when most of the drow are sleeping and such. So sure enough, within a few hours, there's a rattle at the door. Some drow come out with literally buckets of gruel-type food that are fed to the slaves. And uh, Darsh gets his. and It's horrible, but he... Eats it as if he hasn't eaten all day, which he hasn't. But even still, he knows, you know, that's all you get here, and he needs to eat it like it's the best meal he's had. Kind of wolfing that down. Um, You can see that there's, while everyone's eating, there's people are taking count of everybody there, and you know, writing, tallying on a scroll of some kind. Um, And again, he's seeing this all through improvision. It's dark here. There's no visual light at all. It's pitch black to a human. Uh, they wouldn't be able to see a thing. But to Invervision, the different races there can all see the outline of everybody. So you can see someone writing, but you don't see things like ink and such. Um, so as he's kind of just hanging out there, you know, he's he's trying not to be obvious, if you will, but he is trying to, you know, make sure that he's in the forefront. And luckily all his work pays off. Eventually He and another one of the minotaurs are uh, basically waved at from one of the guards, basically motioned inside. Um, Darsh doesn't quite understand what they've said. The other minotaur seems to know a little bit. I mean, You're going to learn a little bit of the language there. You're not going to have much choice. So he just does what he can to do exactly what the other minotaur is doing, as if he understands as well. As he's coming in, the draw kind of gives him a little bit of a puzzled look, like you don't really look Super familiar to me, but I have to say, you know, but then he kind of just, you see the drought, just wave it off, like, ah, you, who can tell you all look the same. They also take a couple different uh, goblins and such, and are, they're put into just some more menial tasks and things, but uh, Darsh is taken to uh, a specific uh, grand set of doors. Um, now, he'd already been warned by some of the mentors out in the slave pens that. uh, this was a common thing that they would do. These doors would lead to the, the chamber of the royals, if you will, the royal family or the noble family of this of this compound. And It was quite common for them to basically guard that while they slept. And There would, there would be a, a taskmaster. There's, there's going to be a, at least a couple drow usually making rotations, walking the halls, but their job was basically to stand there and let no one get through those doors. Um, and they're both given weapons. Uh, they're, they're both given pretty decent stuff. Um, but Darsh knows you know, what he's given is nothing compared to the weapons that the Drow have. He want, they need to have something to be able to pull off their duties, but uh, they're not going to be given the best stuff in the world for fear of, of course, a revolt. So Darsh decides it's best to bide his time. They need to kind of hang out here and see what's going on. He, he very quickly starts to learn the rotation of the Drow, there's two drow that seem to go in opposite directions. They kind of meet up normally where the Minotaur are. They're looking at them, you know, chatting with each other. Did you see anything? No. They hang out for a couple of minutes, then wander around. There's about a 15-minute pause between they get before them getting back. On one of these intervals, when the drow are gone, he kind of shoots a whisper to the other Minotaur, which makes the Minotaur nervous because he knows he's not supposed to be talking. And he's, he's like, do you know the way around here at all? And he shakes like, eh, a little bit. He's like, where would they keep their weapons? And the mentor's eyes get a little large. He goes, "You'll never make it. You have to get through the drow sleeping chambers of, the, of their guard. You'll never get to the weapons." He's like, "Well, leave that to me." Which direction are they? And the mentor basically gives him a little bit of a audio map. Basically describes the thing. They go back to standing still, giving it you know good bit of time. Of course, the drow come around and do their pause again. Darsh is trying to figure out: is it, should he try to do something with these guards? <coughs> Excuse me. Or should he just try to get to these weapons? Because his thought is: not all of the artifacts are weapons, but the key ones are. Maybe they're with those weapons. At the same time, he's thinking: it's very likely that if anyone here knows what they have, while well, the artifacts themselves, you know, if you were to cast a detect magic on a magic item, and I've described this in an earlier episode, but they will glow with different light and such. It'll sometimes a different colored light based on the type of magic that they are. The artifacts will glow with just the dimmest of light. They only give off like they're a very minor magical item when in fact each one is incredibly powerful. Um, And so a lot of times people have these and they don't quite realize what they've got unless they somehow accidentally discover its abilities. Um, Because none of the artifacts require what's called a keyword or a power word there's no specific phrase or term you have to say to activate them. Most of them will activate just through their physical usage. Again, a lot of them are weapons, so stabbing or slashing or or doing the right thing with them um, will, will give off its ability. For example, one of them is a weapon that literally heals. As it cuts you, it hurts just like being cut, but it will heal. So if you have a cut on your hand and you were to take that sword and you were to cut it, the cut, it would literally be healed completely afterwards. It still felt like you were cutting your hand again, but it would heal. Now, of course, someone tries to stab somebody with that weapon. It's not going to kill them. It may hurt them a little bit. They pull it out, the person's completely healed, and you're going to kind of realize, okay, this is clearly not just a regular sword. And that's how a lot of these magical artifacts, people find out what they do, through accident. Um, and some of them will actually have etchings on them. Uh, while, while they're not Keywords as well. Um, They can be phrases or small poems or something that might hint towards the weapon's ability. If you have, if you know what you're looking for. Uh, Another one in the chat. Odg Dutch guy is back. Hello, Alpha. Welcome back to the stream. So Darsh is kind of at a crossroads himself. Do I try to take out these two Drow, which are clearly decent fighters? They're the two up here late at night. They, they're the only two. got to be at least somewhat decent. It has to be assumed that they could take two Minotaurs so they wouldn't be the only ones guarding here. Does he try to take that short period when they're gone to try to get to the weapons? Or does he use that short period to try to get inside the nobles' rooms and see if the magical artifact is in there? He's kicking himself a little bit because he's like, I wish I could have brought that magic amulet with me. It might have pointed the direction, but he was so afraid that he'd be searched. I mean... No Minotaur is going to be hanging out with a magic necklace, and he's not knowing as much about magic as, say, the priests and, or the warriors, and I'm sorry, mages and clerics. He doesn't know if that's something the drow would recognize. Do, do they have detect magic? What if he walks in and to them it's just a glowing beacon of something magic on him? They're totally going to take it, and then they're going to start asking questions. So he would have loved to have brought that necklace in to try to find what he was looking for, but at that point he realizes, that, you know, he knew he couldn't. So kicking himself a little bit there, he's like, okay. I need to make a decision. And he says to the other mentor, he's like, I think I'm going to check the nobles area first. It's the most dangerous because, well, there's maybe less people there than there are drow guards in the drow guard area. The nobles are going to be the best fighters. They're going to be the priestesses. It's going to be any mages. All of the, the most powerful of folks are going to be in there. Um, but at the same time, it's a smaller group. And they should be, in theory, sleeping. Darsh is a minotaur, Not known for his quietness. But, you know, he's not as loud as you might think, especially since he's not wearing basically anything but a loincloth at this point, <clears throat> because he didn't bring any of his armor or anything in with him. Uh, he's pretty much unarmed, and he's just carrying you know, himself, and now he has a, a sword and a shield that are decent quality. He's like, alright, I'm slightly armed. He decides he's, he's going to leave the shield here. Shield's too big and bulky, it might smack on things, make noises, but he doesn't want to go in completely unarmed. Not that Darsh is ever completely unarmed. As a strength as a person, he could rip an arm off of a person quite easily. He's incredibly strong. Um, Minotaur also, of course, have their horns which, for goring, they can be used as a weapon and Minotaur, um, at least in the classic Dungeon Dragon sense, also have a bite attack you can actually, they're very strong teeth they don't have big tusks like you'd expect on goblins and such, but they have a, a very strong bite, you imagine, this the strength of those jaws and as big as their mouths are it's like getting bit by a horse or a cow that's going to hurt uh, so Minotaurs have some natural defenses, even without a weapon but Darsh decides he's going to go in, and he tells the other mentor this. The other Minotaur is like, if you if you go in there, and you get caught, they're going to kill us both. If you go in there, and those other drow show back up, and you're not here, they're going to kill us both. You're going to get me killed. And Dar says, you know, I don't have any choice. I have to do this, it's why I came. But if I'm successful, I will do everything within my power to get you out of here swears on his family, on his family's honor. It's a big thing for the Minotaur. Clearly, the Minotaur he's talking to, at least in his civilization, even if they aren't from the same world, or of the same mindset. He says, okay, they decide he's going to wait till after the, the drow split one more time. So the drow, of course, they hang out a few more minutes, the drow show up, they do their little chatting, checking in what they see, nothing, boring, they look at the Minotaurs with disgust as they do everybody who's not a drow, and they continue on. Uh, they're not gone, But just a moment or so, Darsh quietly sets his shield down, and he opens up the door. And he steps inside, and immediately hears noise. and He freezes. But it doesn't sound like footsteps. It doesn't even sound like somebody breathing. It just sounds kind of like a loud skittering noise. Now, about this time, Fig has made his way part of the way into the drow compound, Uh, still with no signs of Moog at all, but he's trying not to, of course, go to the most populous area, praying that Moog did not do that either, Uh, just wandering around that he hasn't already been caught. There hasn't been any type of uproar. He would expect to hear some kind of noise if an intruder of any kind was found. So that's his one hope he's holding on to. There hasn't been any noise of combat or anyone calling out for you know, guards or anything of that nature, so hopefully Moog is okay. But he's moving deeper and deeper into the city, just his hammer, and very, very as he's moving, quietly, stops and just leans back against a wall and holds his breath. He just happened to have heard a noise. He freezes and about that time, a drow guard comes walking by. Now, Fig is back in a corner, in such a direction that unless the drow was to look right at him, he's not going to see him. But if he looks that direction, even the tiniest bit, it's not like shadows. His aura, his heat, will immediately be seen by the drow's infravision. And the drow are pretty much at this point in the existence of the sentient races, have the best infravision at all. They spend their whole life down here. Many of them will go thousand years without ever seeing light. So even the slightest heat sense, is going to give him away. Fig knows that his chances are slim that he's not going to get noticed. Realizing he has to take a chance, he decides he'd rather go down than just get captured, because if the drow catches him, unaware he's going to be in a rough spot. So Fig moves as quickly as he can and attacks the drow. Now, he does catch the drow by surprise. (coughs) Excuse me. The drow was not expecting this. The drow was not on a guard duty, per se. They were just traveling from building to building and are decent ways inside the kingdom or inside the compound, the assumption is they're safe. You know, there shouldn't be anyone here. The drow aren't are always on their toe a little bit because as a group that consistently has a lot of in-house assassinations, you're always watching your back a bit. So while he's caught by surprise, he's not completely caught. But he is caught enough that he doesn't begin to shout out. And he raises his weapon... To, I mean, pulls that, draws, draws his weapon, which is a short sword, uh, fine blade, by the way, um, to block the weapon and lift it up. Now he, in many situations, would have been okay against a regular warrior, but Fig, while very, very small, is incredibly strong. Again, dwarven-like strength, spends all of his time working out and practicing and being wanting to bring honor to his d- adoptive dwarven family. And that hammer he has is not just a normal hammer. That hammer is blessed by the Dwarven god of the mountains himself. It was forged by his uh, by the one of the Dwarven thanes of the clan that Fig was raised in, because um, he had been wholeheartedly accepted by the Dwarves. And uh, on his coming of age gift, it was forged by the thane himself. This is not a not overly powerful, doesn't have any super abilities other than it is blessed, and it is very, very strong. So in Dungeons and Dragons terms, it wouldn't be a hammer of the something, it wouldn't have like special abilities, but it would be a hammer plus so on. Um, and in this one, for, for, again, that terminology, that hammer was a plus three, which is a pretty powerful weapon. Um, especially if, when you look at these characters and their levels at this point, they're still relatively low-level characters, Um but it's really the only magical thing that Fig has, but it's, it's an heirloom and something he cherishes. So even if he was to come across a better hammer that was more powerful, he probably wouldn't take it because this is his. You know. With all of his strength, the, the sword comes up to block it, but it just it, it can't block the, the swing of the hammer. And the hammer catches the, the drow, not just hitting him there, but pulling the sword against him as well blade incredibly sharp, cuts the drow as it's forced back against him, and the hammer clips the drow in the side of the head, and the drow goes down. He's unconscious. And Fig, looking down, sees the drow. He knows he's alive. Drow is a good, er, sorry, Fig is a good guy, but Fig also knows when things have to be done, and without a thought, Fig leans down, takes the drow's sword, and basically slits his throat. Now, many of the party would not have been okay with that especially when you look at your clerics and your willow. I mean, they're not about that, but dwarven warriors know that in, in battle, these things have to be done. Can't leave someone there. So he does kill him. He does do his best to stash the body. Again, not super easy to do because even a dead body is going to give off a little bit of heat for a little while, but he does his best to try to kick dust and dirt and rocks over without making any noise. He does take a small pouch that was hanging on the drow's neck, um... It looks like it's very well made. And he's like, it looks like it's important. I'm going to keep it. Who knows, I might be able to use it. Maybe Willow or somebody can can find use of it. He takes that and he moves in deeper in, into the compound. At this point, he's like, I have to start heading into the compound. I can't go around anymore. I have to go in. So he starts making his way in. Now during that time, Willow and Mercy are hanging back with the chest of holding in their little alcove, in their little cave. Excuse me, I had a pop a Hulls there. Throat lozenge. And uh, <laughs> this video is not sponsored by Hulls. I, uh, <laughs> they're just kind of hanging out. And Mercy's doing her best to you know, listen for things, but she can't see. They're sitting there in the dark, and Mercy stays there with her hand on Willow's arm at all times when there's no light to be seen. As I mentioned, sometimes she'll go down into the chest of holding, they'll close it, she can turn a light on, like by turning a light on, I mean light a candle, obviously not flip a switch you know, but uh, hang out and get a little bit of light to get that breather that she needs but during this time period, she's you know, they're both watching for any sign is Darsh going to come back, maybe they'll see Moog and they can snatch him up before he gets caught maybe Fig will come back Lord knows, maybe they will just be an alarm and they'll know their friends are in trouble and they, they gotta go charge again so they're all just sitting there very aware and they're kind of like laying on their stomachs looking over the ledge because they want to keep most of their body hidden too so their body heat's not giving away any of their position from anyone who might be watching in a distance. And Mercy's there, and Mercy's just in, in her mind going over the different scenarios. If this happens, I'll do this. I'll grab a torch. Gotta, i got to have a light. She has a torch near her, She knows she can light it pretty quickly. I have to have some kind of light. I'm, I can kind of battle in the dark, but even with a light, that's her best bet against the drow, because Drow are not good in the light. They won't be expecting that. They could potentially be blinded. Willow knows that as well, so they both have torches there, although it'll be a little bit harder for Willow to drop out of the infrared spectrum back to the seeing light. For Mercy, it's going to be great. Uh, And that's going to be the best shot they've got. So they're kind of hanging out, and they're not talking. They're just watching occasionally, you know, give each other a bit of a nudge, let them know they're still there, they're still okay. And Mercy starts getting tired. She's like, God, I'm sleepy. How how long has it been since we were able to sleep? She gets like she wasn't that long. She just took a nap a few hours and then she's out. It must have been exhausted. Or was she? Not so much. Because at the same time Willow felt herself going to sleep. Quickly searching for the words of a spell, they all jumble in her mind, and she realizes that she's being inspelled. Or spelled, if you will. But she does not have the ability to stop it before she's caught aware and she also goes unconscious. It's taking every single thing, every bit of training, every bit of self-control that Darsh has, not to scream in horror as he stands in the entryway of a room filled with spiders of multiple different sizes. As we've discussed previously, Darsh has a spider phobia deathly afraid of spiders. Is there a reason for it? Yes. But that's a story for another time. I try to, anytime somebody has a phobia, I try to have a reason why they have the phobia. And Darsh's is a good one, but it comes in important later, so that's something we'll talk about later. But there is a reason why Darsh hates spiders. Some of these spiders would be the size of a a puppy. And by a puppy, I mean like a big puppy, like a, I guess I should say by a medium-sized dog, would probably be better not a puppy. And they're just wandering around, all the way tarantulas, little ones. And Darsh is just in hell. He's like, this is the worst thing he can think of. And he knows he only has maybe ten minutes before he has to be back out there, before those drow are going to be back on their cycle. And in his head, while he's trying not to literally scream, he's keeping a count. And that's how he's trying to keep it saying, just concentrating on the numbers, counting the seconds, making sure that he's keeping an eye on the time. Because clearly he does not have a watch. There's no light in this room. He just sees the movement. And imagine that, if you will. You're in a room, Infrared vision. Everything is in the infrared spectrum. Different heats giving off different shapes. Now people who live in that and have the you know, like elves, the best vision of it, they can see much crisper outlines. For a lot of people, like minotaurs and such, you can see, but it's just more of almost like a blobby shape. And you just imagine that the walls and the floors are just moving, like they're alive. That's what this looks like to Darsha. He sees that there are several rooms, or doors leading to other rooms. So, the room it's, that he's in right now, the chamber is round. The center seems to kind of dip down into a seating area. So if you will, it kind of goes down into a bowl and then becomes flat, which, like, pillows and cushions and such, where people probably meet and sit comfortably down in there. Up against one wall is a a seat that could be very easily be a throne, or somebody important would sit on when taking visitors. Um, that's kind of the layout. Different tables, and there's things there. Nothing that would give light. There are a couple torches on the wall, not lit. Clearly, no light coming, heat coming from it at all. Darsh can tell that they're not lit. Darsh slowly starts making his way towards one of those, having the same mental thought as Mercy had. Switching back from infrared to normal vision and light is challenging, but Darsh would be way faster at it than would any elves. So, not easy, of course, to light a torch, especially one that hasn't been lit in a long time, but as a Minotaur, get, Darsh's got his own ways of doing that. He's very knowledgeable at how to build campfires and such. He figures he can do it pretty quickly if he needs to. He's got the sword. Maybe he can get a spark off that. He gets up close. He smells the torch. That's crawling with small spiders, and he's trying to gently shake them off and not get them on himself. He can smell the torch. He can smell the oil. They clearly have some type of flammable on them. He's like, okay, this could work. If I can get a spark off of my uh, sword, off of the stone wall or something, it, it might light enough and give me at least a little bit of an edge against anybody who may wake up. He makes his way to a door and he reaches down and as his hand's about to reach the doorknob he feels a bit of a tingling and he quickly pulls his hand away. He's like, okay. I think that doorknob has got some type of magic on it. Because again, not not a lot but a little. Darsh is not a fool. He hangs out with enough spellcasters. There's, what, three of them in the group. He knows enough about spellcasting what to watch for and he's like, "Mm, I don't think so. I'll leave you for last. He goes to the next door. This door doesn't have any type of feeling from it at all. Gently turns the lock. No noise at all. Drower, very, very fancy. They're not going to allow squeaky stuff. The house is well kept. Man to open the door. Looking inside, he sees no one. It appears to be some type of room. Obviously. But, I mean, like a supply room. Kind of. You go in, there's a table, there's chairs. Looks like this is some kind of a meeting room. There's some type of papers and such. On the uh, table, and there's a candle that has just the tiniest, faintest bit of heat on the wick. Darsh is now concerned. He's like, okay, clearly, there's a wizard here. You cannot read ink in the dark. You just can't do it wizards are the only drow that will commonly keep some type of light, like a low candle. They have some experience with light because they still need to be able to read spellbooks and write spellbooks. So wizards, he's like, he knew to look for this. Again, we mentioned Willow knew a lot about drow and she shared a lot of this with these guys before they got in there. And he's like, okay. I see what's happening here. There's a wizard somewhere around here. And at a thought, he's like, these papers, I can't read what they are, Rolls a couple of them up, tucks them in his little loincloth, if you will. Besides looking around near the little candle, he finds the equivalent of basically what would be a match. It's a little sparking stick, and he's like, Excellent, this is what I needed. Tucks that in, well, into his hand, makes his way back out of the room. As he's searching the other rooms, he opens them just enough, looking inside, he can, or as he gets close to the door, he can hear people inside sleeping, snoring doing other things. You can hear these have people in them. I'm going to go back to that magic door and see what happens. He goes back to the magic door and he's like, it's either going to have some kind of alarm on it or it's going to have some kind of trap in it. Like, damaging. And he's like, I don't know which is what, what to do here. So Darsh gets to thinking and he's like, He gets an insane idea. He goes, I don't know if this is going to work. But it's the most horrifying idea he's ever had. Setting his sword down gently, he waits for a minute until one of the particularly large spiders comes by. And using every bit of courage he has, reaches down and grabs it. Now Moog is having a great time. Moog is just wandering around, looking around. It's all dark in here. Of course, his improvisation is not as strong as everyone else's. But he's just wandering around looking for Figgy. He knows Figgy's got to be here somewhere. Figgy would never leave him. Figgy's his hero. And he's just kind of wandering around. Now, he sees the scary dark elves. And they don't look very friendly. Now, remember, Moog's not that smart. But he's also not a complete fool. He's a gully dwarf. And gully dwarfs spend their entire lives hiding from other races, trying not to be seen or be found. Just because, you know, they'll be punished or killed just for existing. And he makes sure that anytime anybody's coming around him, he finds a little corner to hide in or a little hole to pull into. And then keeps on going looking for Figgy. But he's not too worried because he's got his pot on his head and he's got his little hammer. And if anybody's giving Figgy a problem, they are going to get one heck of a high-up bunk. Just his little babble cry. Fig, inside his mind... It's just screaming from the small ledge that he's on looking down into the what could only be a, a, a drow park if you will It's there's vegetation there there's benches there's a little stream running in it he doesn't see any drow except for one or two occasionally wandering on a circle but what he does see is a little gully dwarf making his ways to get a drink of water out of the little river the little uh, fountain in the middle of the park Fig is like, oh my god, I've got to get down there. And as quickly and as quietly as he can, he starts making his way down into it. Now, he's been searching for several hours at this point. I want to give an idea here. Stop real quick and just give a, a point of view of how much time has gone by. Darsh has been in the compound. We're about, In the story of those two, they're about the same part, time. But Darsh has been in there a big part of the day. Fig has been in there for several of hours. Uh, He would say at this point, at least three to four hours. Which is concerning him because, of course, he doesn't know exactly when daytime is going to come to the Drow kingdom. And more activity is going to be harder for him to get Moog out of here. But at least he sees the little guy, and his heart does swell a little bit knowing he's alive. But he's got to get down there. He's got to get him out. He starts making his way down. Mercy comes too and sees nothing. She's in complete darkness. And she reaches around trying to find Willow and finds nothing. Willow's not near her. She almost freaks out because in that brief moment she's like, I'm lost in the dark. Takes her a second, she regains her composure. She's like, okay, if I fell asleep here, Willow is here, then the chest of holding should be behind me. She starts to slowly crawl backwards, trying not to make noise, hoping her feet will bump against it. If She can find it. She can go down in it to at least get a torch or a candle or something, so she, you know, knows because she knows she went unconscious, but she wasn't. She doesn't know she was in spell. But her foot does hit something, and she stops, but not before it moves and makes the sound of a chair rubbing against the floor, and she stops. She is clearly not where she was before. That revelation actually helps calm her down. From the fear of darkness, now she knows there's a threat. Now she has something to focus on. And she very quietly comes to her feet. She's in a fighting stance. And she just begins to not move and to control her breathing to listen for sounds. Mercy is a trained blind fighter. If two people of her caliber were in the darkness... She would have an edge because she's trained to fight in the dark, one of the things she did growing up. But against someone who can see, of course, she's going to be at a horrible, horrible negative, right? But she is listening. And after a few moments, she can hear breathing. She slowly turns towards that direction. And she can tell that the breathing is deep and quiet and it's coming from lower, which makes her think that must be Willow. Willow may be unconscious, but i got to be careful. Starts making her way in that direction very, very quietly. (coughs) Excuse me. Moving as quietly as she can, she gets there. She nudges with her foot, and she feels the softness against her foot. It's the same way she would expect Willow. Reaching down, she begins to shake Willow. You can tell it's Willow very quickly by putting her hands on her. They're very comfortable. They know each other. Her small frame And as Willow starts to come to, the tiniest bit of light flares up behind Mercy. Letting go of Willow, she immediately turns around to face what's there. And what she sees is a desk with a candle. Now, the candle's hooded. It's giving just the faintest bit of light, but enough for her to get a little bit of shadow. It takes her eyes a minute to adjust. even She's been in dark for a while now. Can you imagine what that's like when you first wake up? Up, you're in the dark room, you, you know, your eyes have adjusted a little bit better because you're used to dark, but if the light comes on, you're like, ah, time every single morning. So that's how it works. Her she's not moving, her eyes are adjusting, and she sees sitting behind the desk a drow male. And he's just sitting there staring at her. She can't make a lot of his features because the candle's between the two of them, so there's a bit of a light on the bottom of his face, but he's wearing a, a large hat. She can hear Willow getting up next to her and the two girls are just sitting there staring at him and he just smiles and he says good evening ladies in perfect common where are we? says Mercy very calmly as well, trying to match his tone and he smiles a little more he goes, you're in my place but I wouldn't worry if I wanted you dead, you'd be dead already. Wouldn't you agree? Mercy nods her head, in understanding. I would say yes. If we were unconscious, it would have been nothing for you to, to kill us. He said, that's true, but instead I had my people bring you here. So I obviously am not in a rush to kill you. Mercy very quickly picks up on the, I'm not, not that I don't want to kill you, but that I'm not in a hurry. And Willow says, So either we have something you want, or you need us for something. Willow's not stupid. And the drow smiles, and he says, excellent, excellent. You two will do just fine. Excellent. I've been waiting quite a while to get my hands on someone like you. And he points at Willow. Your friend, a perk. But you specifically, you're going to be mighty useful to me. Mercy steps a little bit in front of Willow, defensively. And, he, and the drow shakes his head and waves and goes, I wander for nothing quite so crude. Trust me, I can get my pleasures anywhere. Her small frame would do nothing for me. But it's your gift. That's more important to me. You are a cleric. You are holy. You speak for the gods. While you may not be my desired Holy Speaker, you represent a God that should be able to pull off what I need done. Now, Willow's concerned, she goes, it's true that I honor the goddess of nature, but my powers are not not to be used or squandered lightly. I speak for the God, but I do his bidding, not yours. He says, ah, but what if our biddings are the same? What if we want the same thing? You see, there is something that I want that I can't get. Oddly enough, crazy, I know. You'd think someone as ravishing and powerful as myself could have anything you wanted, and it's true. I can, except for this one thing. There is a amulet that I would like to have. Now, this amulet is in a room. Not just any room, of course, a special room. A room that was ensorcelled and trapped with magic from a god of the light. And so I, and none of the priests or wizards in my employ, are able to get in there. We've yet to find a way in, and trust me, when I say we've been looking a long time, we've been looking a very long time. And so it's been brought to me that what I need is some type of cleric of light. Someone who can go into that room without it thinking that you're an enemy and potentially not destroy you like it has the last few people I've had to send in there mercy and willow give each other a little look for a second but are listening to him mercy and willow know that it's best to let him talk if he wants to throw information out good the more they know the better no sense asking questions let him give as much as he will he says i don't know why you're here I don't know why you'd be foolish enough to come near this kingdom. Clearly, there must be something you want or something you need. Oh! Thank you very much, G. Con Carajo. I apologize if I butchered that. Thank you very much for the follow. I appreciate that. He goes, Something's brought you here. Something of great need. And I'm willing, it has something to do with that fancy necklace on your neck. Willow reaches instinctually and puts her hand over the amulet given by the demigod and at the same time her holy symbol because clerics have usually some type of amulet or holy symbol that represents their god it's kind of the token of their power a lot of times it's needed to, to cast the spells and such of a priest and he says I couldn't have that either trust me I tried when I went to remove it from your neck turns out it wouldn't come off I tried cutting it that didn't work out I tried just lifting it gently off your head. I tried having someone else lift it off your head. I had someone else try to rip it off of you. And that didn't work. His hand is still bleeding. I think we're probably going to have to cut it off. Whoever put that on you does not want it taken by force. And I can respect that. I can respect that. That was not put on by somebody with a little bit of magical power. Which means you have friends. Friends that are clearly more powerful than you. So my concern is, are they here as well? We're looking, and if they are, we'll find them. But if they're not, then you may still be of use to me in the future. So let's chat. What brought you here? You're far from home. Mercy and Willow look at each other for a second. Willow nods and Mercy decides to be the one who speaks. She goes, we're looking for something an item that was lost. Someone very powerful and important has sent us to get it, and it turns out that it's somewhere here, in this kingdom. And so we were watching, just the two of us, we managed to sneak down here. Uh, It wasn't easy, of course, but uh, we were watching to hopefully find signs of what it is, or where it is, I'm sorry, not what it is. He says, I thought as much. It had to be someone or something. And since there's no humans or elves enslaved anywhere that I know of in this entire kingdom, it couldn't be a person that you know. So it had to be an item. Understandable. But the two of you made it here by yourselves? I highly doubt that. But we'll leave that for later. I don't need whoever else it is. I just need you. So here's what I propose. I will take you to the room. That I spoke of earlier You will go inside You will get the amulet And you will bring it to me If you do that I will send you on your way I will take you back And I will let you go And I won't take any of the fancy items that I found on you And I'll be honest That chest is pretty fancy Clearly I don't. I can't get it to work quite right It's still sitting back there But my my wizards will break that spell pretty quickly If I want them to We can get into that But I'll let you take it all I just want the amulet. Mercy just sneers, like, why in the world would I believe you? What's to keep you from just killing us? He's like, absolutely nothing. You're completely correct. Nothing would keep me from killing you. Except, you have powerful friends. And I'm not afraid of them. Trust me. I've stared power down more times than I can count but your powerful friends may help me in the future which means you might be able to help me in the future and so if you get me my amulet I will give you a gift and this is no small gift this is one of a kind item that belongs to one of the royal family here in, the, uh, in this kingdom and uh, I managed to find it if you will but I think that it would be going to a good cause if I give it to you. And he reaches over and opens up a small chest, and he pulls out what appears to be some kind of tiara, tiara, if you want. and in it is just a, it's like a, a gem in the center of it, and it's like with like black diamonds, a couple small ones. It's clearly made of silver. Or a silver-like metal. Uh, It's very, very shiny. It looks very expensive. Um, It's actually made of platinum, but it looks silvery in the little light that they can see. Um, It's like a bluish metal. And he takes it, and he just tosses it at Mercy. Mercy deftly snatches it out of the air, and at the same time holds it out away, in fear that it does something bad. Holds it away from Willow. Nothing happens when she has it, though. She's looking at it. He says, put it on. Again, if I wanted you dead, you would be. Knowing that she uh, she has no weapons on her. All of her weapons are gone. And he doesn't see any weapons on him, but clearly he's very, very casual. She's willing to bet there's someone else looking around here. There's someone else who could very quickly come in if she was to cause problems. She's like, I'll wait for the right moment. She takes the tiara and she puts it in her hair. You no, know, it's like, puts it on like a... It's, does, it's not like a big, huge thing. It's just a thin band that would kind of tuck into her hair. And the second she puts it on, her vision gets wobbly and she puts her hand out. Willow grabs her to brace her. And she blinks her eyes and she goes, she's about to pull it off and he's like, give it a moment. She stops and she looks and the room is completely visible to her. He blows out the the small candle that was giving light to the room and to her, it's like a bright sunny day. It's completely lit. She turns to Willow can see Willow. Now again, you don't see anything like the reflections. Nothing has a shadow. She notices that very quickly. But she can see perfectly fine. She looks back at him because clearly this is not just a small magic item. He's like he's like, yes, I know what it does. Yes, I know how rare it is. Clearly it's something you need more than I do. I think that and your safety out of here is a small price to pay for you to get me my amulet. Willow, you know, says, what's it do? (laughs) She doesn't know. Mercy goes, I can see perfectly fine. And Willow's eyes are like, oh, okay. He's like, do we have a deal? And Mercy goes, what does the amulet do? He's like, I'm not going to tell you. And what I'm going to use it for is none of your business. Once it's in my possession, you never need worry about it again. But, that little, that little uh, fancy thing on your head, that's yours to keep. But I will come to talk to you in the future. One day, you and I are going to meet again. And maybe we can be of assistance to each other. But for today, I just want my amulet. Willow and Mercy step back a second, chat a little bit. They decide, you know, what else choice have they got? If they say no, odds are he's just going to kill them right now. If they say yes, eh, maybe we can figure out what this amulet does, maybe we can use it against them. If not, if we can get out of here safely, that might help. And with this, definitely I will be way more useful down here, is what Mercy says. She turns and she goes, we'll accept your offer, but we do want one extra thing. And he smiles and he goes, you always do. What else? can I use to sweeten the deal? She says, we do have several allies here, and we want to make sure that they get out of here okay as well. He says, you have but to tell me who they are and where they are, and I will have them escorted out of the kingdom with you. Mercy says, there are two of them. One is, an, is a small gnome, another one is a gully dwarf. At that, the drow's face, ugh, gully dwarf, Shakes his head and like gives that look like, why? <laughs> he's like, fine. She goes, where they are, we're not sure. There's somewhere here in the kingdom. Now, she doesn't mention Darsh. Because if anyone in the group has the capability of potentially getting out of here, it's going to be Darsh, just with his strength and his experience. He has a chance of escaping out with the original plan, and she doesn't want to throw that off because hopefully he's going to be successful. And If not, they can always try to come back, especially now that she's a little bit more helpful. He says, excellent. I will send my my men to have them removed immediately. They will not be harmed. Now, if you'll follow me, please. He rises up, and he makes his way to a door. At this point, the girl's like, okay, there's a door there, but neither of them noticed the door originally. Even Mercy now can see everything. There was not a door there a moment ago, but now there is. They walk over. He opens the door, and he motions them through. They walk out. They travel a distance, and every so often he's like, turn left, turn right, going up and down some ramps and such. And you can tell that where they're going is not a place that's been used frequently. It's very dusty, there's cobwebs, they're traveling through tunnels that are not regularly used. (coughs) Mercy can see some scruff marks in the dirt, so people have been through here, but not a lot. The room was much better kept than this. And it takes them about 45 minutes of walking, I'm a little tired at this point because it's been a long day for them. They didn't get a nap, but, you know. It takes about 45 minutes to get where they want to, and they get to the tunnel. The tunnel of turns just finally comes and opens up to two big doors with with big gold door knockers on them, and the doors are just slightly open and ajar. He goes, we managed to get the doors open. took us about 600 years, but they're open now. Unfortunately, anyone else who's walked through there, dead within seconds. It was like, how are they dying? He goes, I don't know. Literally, it's different every time. Once he burst into flames. The next one, she just looked like she melted from the head down. The third one disintegrated into dust. And I liked him. Well, I did until he s- tried to steal my money. <laughs> then I didn't like him as much, but he was useful still. I- I'm just, I've lost more people to this doorway, and they can't get more than one to two steps in. But my, uh, my mages tell me that you're different. You being a cleric of light, well, not a cleric of the light, you're still close enough that you've got a shot of getting in there. And your friend's going to go with you for protection. I don't know if she's going to die or not. I personally don't care. If you give me my amulet, the deal's on. Mercy's like, well, thanks for that. Without much option. They saw no one else the whole time that they were traveling, other than this one drow who has yet to give his name. They've not asked. He's not asked for theirs. But clearly he's very confident. They feel that there's probably others around as well. And there have been little sounds and such occasionally that could lead to that. For Willow, anyways. Mercy hasn't heard nothing. Willow's hearing is a little bit better. And they get there. They're like, well, we've got no other choice. We're going to have to go in this door. So Willow's like, I'm going to go first. Mercy's like, I don't think so. Willow's like, yes, in this situation, well, I understand your instinct is to protect me. I think it's best that I go. If one of us is to make it through there, If I don't, there's no reason for you to go in at all. Mercy doesn't like this, but understands that Willow's idea is sound. So Willow, closing her eyes for a second, saying a prayer to her God, steps through the door. Now, when I say steps through, it's it's a small place. She has to kind of go sideways, but she scooches through into the chamber, takes a step, and then stops. Nothing happens, there's no sound. Just smells like old, like an, like you'd imagine an old room would be. There's a smell of a, the, almost the slightest bit of mildew. Looking around the room, she can see that there are sarcophagi. So coffins, but with shapes of people. And not Egyptian-looking stuff, just, you know, regular knights or whatever. She, they're worn with age, so it's hard to make out what shapes they were, but clearly they're a humanoid of some kind. There's tables with looks like some books on them. Looks like the books were literally opened and read and then just left there. The room does not look like it, you know, it's been recently entered. There's a thick layer of dust everywhere, but no cobwebs, nothing, or no, spiderwebs, anyways, cobwebs, right? but no spiderwebs, nothing sign that anything living has been in this room in a very long time. Mercy says, I'm coming through. She's like, wait, give me a moment. I want to move a little further in first. Mercy looks back at the drow, and the drow nods his head. She's like, all right, go. Will takes a few more steps in. Now, she immediately begins casting a spell detecting magic. Is there any magic in here? Is there a trap? Is there something she needs to be aware of? And the whole room has a tiny glow to it. So she's like, okay, the whole room itself is in source. Several of the books stacked on the big stone table desk thing at the end have a bit of a glow to them as well. But she doesn't see anything that would appear to be any type of amulet or necklace. She says, okay. She starts looking around the shelves. She goes to the books. As she begins to even touch their pages, they start to crumble. She pulls her hands back quickly, not trying to damage them any further. Clearly, they're ancient. All that leaves are the four different casket sarcophagi things that I was talking about, which there's two on each side of the room. She's like, well, maybe maybe it was buried with whoever. We'll go look in there. <clears throat> she goes over, and she goes to lift the lid off of the first one and she can't lift it. It's just too heavy. She tries just pushing it. It barely wiggles at all. She's like, okay, I'm not going to be able to do this myself. She goes back to the door and she says, "What?" She tells what she says to both the drow and to Mercy. And the drow, you can see a very eager look on his face. He's still calm, but you can see, eh. Yeah. She's like, hearing a description of things he has yet to even see, but he's been waiting a long time. He says, I don't see any type of amulet. Maybe they're in the sarcophagus or in the, in the coffins. He's like, ah, coffins. Okay, cool. That makes sense. He looks at Mercy. goes, go in and help her. Clearly, she can't lift them herself. Mercy nods. and While well, Willow's not happy about it, Mercy goes in. And they start to hear, as Mercy starts to step in, they hear almost like a little bit of a, a hiss noise. And Willow reaches out and puts her hand on Mercy's hand. And as soon as she does, the noise stops. Mercy comes in and goes to take her hand away, but Willow shakes her head. No, no, no. You need to stay with me. Mercy nods. At at all times at this point, Willow's keeping a a hand on Mercy's arm or something of that nature, making sure that she does not come out of contact with her. Because at this point, the only assumption is, of course, that whatever is in the room is not going to hurt her or anyone that she's connected to, someone that she's basically putting her blessing on. She is blessed. She's passing her blessings to those she would lay hands upon. There's actually a cool spell for that that I found online many, 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 many years ago. Um, that's a, a cleric spell of that. To, it's a extend blessing or something like that. It was share blessing. I lost the s- specifics when I lost all my paperwork in the water, but it was a very cool spell and I never really sat down to reproduce it. It's the only time I've ever used it. But uh, she basically extends blessing and uh, they go over to the scrofagus and Mercy, using her two arms and Willow, throwing hers under there, managed to slide it over. It's, it's still heavy. It's stone and the figures themselves are bigger than either of them. Mercy's not large. She's still relatively... I mean, she's slightly short even for a human, but she's pretty muscular. She's buff. They manage to push it off. Now, Willow, with her information, doesn't see anything inside because, of course, she... The only thing she sees is that it's holding some type of a staff with a with two hooks on the end of it. Not hooks, but curves comes up and then curves. Almost like a Loki's helmet. It's nothing based with Loki, but that, almost like, you know, he's got those horns under there. It's kind of like that coming out of the top. And it glows with magical aura, but it's not an amulet. Mercy can see it perfectly well with her little headband on now, but she doesn't see anything magical. And she looks at Willow, and Willow shakes her head. Because Willow's like, I'm not giving this guy anything more than I need to. They move on to the next, and they continue the process. The next one they open up doesn't have anything in it magical, but both of them have just the shrouded, faintest shape of a body, and they're afraid if they touch it, it would just collapse. It's that old. It's the third one that they open that clearly has an amulet around its neck. And it's glowing with magical aura. She can't see exactly what, um, but she does see that it's magical. So Willow reaches in, and she's like... Careful. She reaches in, she puts her hand on it, and as she goes to pick it up, the body just crumbles to dust. And she can hear sounds coming from the other sarcophagus that sound the same way, just like well, except the one that's closed. You can't hear anything happen. But the other one's it's like a puffing and you hear a clanking of like the, the staff just landing on the bottom. And they're like, I think it's time to go. They make their way to the door quickly, nothing tries to stop them, nothing rises from the grave, and they manage to exit the room successfully. Once outside, the drow smiles and he says, you succeeded. You have my amulet. I'll be honest, I didn't think you were going to survive. I'd hoped. It was going to be a little irritating losing that little headband you've got on there, but I don't mind. That amulet's worth it. If you wouldn't mind passing that over here. she says, what about our friends? He goes, we've located them. They're being gently guided back to where you ladies took your nap and if you'll hand me my amulet, I'll return you to them. The girls are a little nervous about it but they're like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Will holds out the amulet and as he goes to take it, he goes I want you to remember, this isn't the end of this conversation. One day we will speak again and I will have use of you. And in that time, maybe you'll have use of me, too." And he smiles, and he takes the amulet. Tucking it into a a shirt pocket, he says, "'These two gentlemen will take you to your friends.'" The girls look quickly to the side, and there are two more drow there. Gentlemen, well-dressed, armed to the teeth. And they're like, "'What about our weapons and such?' He goes, "'Sitting back where I left you. We didn't need those. They'll escort you out. Remember my kindness.'" Remember that you're leaving here unscathed. Remember that I'm helping you and your friends escape. And I've given you a wonderful and yet powerful magic item. And I've done nothing to harm you. Remember that when we speak again. Mercy nods. Not happy with the situation, but has to admit the guy has been relatively cool. He has not done anything bad other than cast a spell on them and make them go do this. He hasn't done anything to harm them. And she's very eager to make sure to get back and make sure that her friends are okay. And she starts booking it back. Fig, with little Moog's hand in his, is quickly and quietly trying to get the hell out of this drow kingdom. He knows his friends, Mercy and Willow, are back at the chest probably worried. He knows Darsh could be back by now, or they could all be in trouble and need him. But he has to get Moog out, so he's He's explained to Moogie he has to be very quiet, and they've been doing their best to sneak out of the kingdom. It's been very relative, actually been overwhelmingly easy to escape. At not any time have they seen any drow. Fig's a little shocked by this. I mean, he saw many coming in and out, at least at a distance, but on his way back out, retracing his steps, it's like every drow is staying completely away from him. Of course, this is because... Our mysterious drow has made sure that his people are helping guide Fig out without making themselves apparent. But Fig doesn't know this, and not to look a gift horse in the mouth. He is making his way out and successfully gets back to the cavern. And when he gets back there, he climbs up, only to find that the two girls are gone. And now he screams in his head again. Why the hell? But he's like, I can't leave again. I can't just leave Moog here. So he gets Moog in the corner, gives him something to, to do, because <laughs> you got to keep Moog occupied so he doesn't wander off. And he gets puts his armor and his gear back on, and he's very concerned because the girls' weapons are here. There's Willow's staff, there's Mercy's star and her shield and her sword and her knife and her axe, because Mercy's a walking armory. Says this is they're not they wouldn't have wandered off without these. But there's no signs of conflict. The magic items and all their gear are still here. So if someone had taken them prisoner, why would they have left that? He's completely dumbfounded. But he can't leave Moog, so he's just kind of doing his best to keep an eye on Moog and keep him quiet while watching for any sign from the city that his friends may need him. Everything in Darsh's mind is saying, let go, let go, let go. (laughs) And the spider's legs are thrashing about. Not used to being grasped by a minotaur. Darsh does the only thing he can think of in that moment. He takes it, and he stabs it onto the doorknob. And then turns the doorknob. I want to say that my characters, when playing these games, have some very, very interesting ideas. But then you take a spider, stab it on, turn the doorknob, and Darsh feels a bit of a, sh- a zap of a shock when he does that. Let's go. And the spider starts writhing, and then it dies doesn't die quietly. It did make a noise. Darsh is in a hurry. Darsh throws the door open really quickly and steps inside. A male drow is jumping up from the bed, groggy, not sure what's going on. Darsh takes no time, stabs him right through the chest. No time to play. Stabs him through the chest, puts his hand on his mouth, asks him for just a second while he gurgles and falls down, pulls the sword out. And as he does, and he falls, he drops. He sees a ring on the drow's finger. Now, Darsh recognizes the metal as the same metal as the other two artifacts they have. That ring is clearly a ring that does something. He doesn't know what it is. He's hoping that's what he's here for. He's not going to take... He tries to pull it off. He's pulling as hard as he can. It won't come off. He hears noise from the other room and the spiders have started to stream in. Darsh has no time for this. (coughs) Cuts the hand off and starts making his way out. As he gets into the room, one of the other doors opens, and a drow female comes running, comes, comes out, wondering what the noise is. Without a thought, Darsh just throws the sword, and it goes through her shoulder. Doesn't kill her, but it does, literally with his strength, send her flying back into the room she came out of. Darsh goes bolting to the door and throws it open. The other minotaur is looking at him like, what the hell? Hang on a second. my Watch... <laughs> Something I did just automatically tagged Siri, and she was about to ask me a question. Um, but it's like, what's going on? He's like, we gotta go. And he grabs the shield that was there, and the mentor's like, okay. And they start running towards the door, and noises start coming. You start hearing yelling. The drow know what's, something's going on. Clearly, he just almost killed one. He slotted another one. He wasn't real quiet about that last part. And as they go running towards the doors where the other slave compounds are, Darsh is like, we have to go that way. Because we're not getting out of here by ourselves. And as they come... They will come across a, a couple drow on the... As they do. Other guards. Uh, Darsh just very easily makes... Make work of them. Kills them quickly. The other Minotaur, not in the best of shape. He's been a slave a while. Still pretty strong. Manages to hold his own. But Darsh does most of the work. He manages to take out the guards. But they do drop their crappy swords and pick up the drow swords, which are much higher quality. And they grab those. They take their crappy swords with them. They don't drop them. I, I said that wrong. They take those because they want to give them to the slaves. But they bust into the slave's pen and the other mentor with him who gave his name, by the way his name was Morg, I should have said that The other introduced himself as Morg, M-O-R-G says says we can't get out of the slave pens, we have to go through the building. They're, they're ensorcelled, we can't get through those, but if we run through the keep we might be able to get out literally the front door if we can make it alive. Darce screams out to the other slaves, if you ever had, you know if you ever wanted to have a chance of getting the hell out of here You've got to run and fight now. It's the only shot you're going to have got. He throws the few weapons that they gathered on the ground. One of the mentors a couple of the goblins, pick him up. The dwarves get a gro- toothy smile. I say toothy because they're missing a bunch of teeth. They're not kept well here. And everybody just starts charging in with them. And they start charging through. Now, the Drow haven't had a slave uprising in a long time, especially in the middle of the night. Catches the guards that are stumbling out to see what's going on, kind of unaware. And this mob of 20 or 30 different erased... Uh, Again, known for strength. While they're relatively unkept, there's goblins and there's hobgoblins. There's some bulky, relatively strong characters here. Or, creatures. They manage to basically unmob, Tink, which gives them more weapons. Kill the drow that they get a hold of. Now, some of the more armored drow are coming out. They're a little bit better. The slaves are trying to fight them off. Darsh and several of the Minotaur, a couple of the dwarves are making their way towards the door, fighting the best way that they can. Trying to cause as much Chaos as they can. It's at this point that Darsh comes across near the door, and there's these big banners hanging on the wall um, that are, you know, to the gods and such. It's like tapestries and such, and they're old. And Darsh is like, This will do. And he takes out his match and he lights that torch, and it flares up, and he starts lighting all of the pa- banners and tapestries and anything he can find that's burnable. There's not a lot of wood here. In the in underground, there's clearly not a lot of trees. There are some tree-like stuff you can find in the underdark, uh, but none of that's here. It's it, wood is rare. So, but there are cloths and things made of spider silk, of course. Um, and so he starts lighting all that stuff on fire, and the room bursts into flame. And even the, even the slaves are, Ugh, ah, what the hell? You know, we're not. We haven't seen light in a long time. Darsh, uh, okay, but he's a little bit better. He's been underground less time. They manage to throw the doors open and go running out. Now it is important to remember that I said that this is a s- only a part of a drought kingdom. It's a relatively smaller compound. In a full-blown, high-ranking family's house of a drought kingdom, they would have never got this far. Uh, it's only because they're literally in what would be one of the smaller houses. One of the few that came through, did they have any shot at all? Because uh, one of the higher houses would have had ten times the guards and wizards and such. This was a small family and they managed to bust their way out. But they get out and, basically as a group, they start tearing through the city. Well, warnings are going up in the city, and of course, and you know, alarms are going off. But <clears throat> the drow, of course, now have a building with a whole bunch of fire near the front door, and they're blinded by it. They can't see past anything at all. The one who could, Darsh cut his hand off and killed him. And that guy would have been, uh, with that much flame and that much light, would have been a problem as well. Mercy and Willow making their way back up to the alcove, the two drow that were guiding them. You know, kind of sent them on their way a little bit earlier uh, a few minutes ago, so they're not with them anymore, but they get up there, and Fig is super happy to see them, and he's like, what the hell went what happened? He's whispering, of course. And they begin to tell the story when they start hearing the noises come from the city. And in one direction, where Darsh went, they can see what looks like flames coming out of the window. <laughs> and, uh, and they look at each other, and they're like, oh, god, Darsh, what have you done? Um, Darsh is, of course, fighting his way out, and he feels a big pain in the back of his leg and he's ah and he looks down and there's like this leech type spider creature sticking to the back of his leg just digging in it hurts like fire and he's trying to get it and he's trying to pull it off and it won't come off and so he just literally takes the sword and he tries to pry it off and when he does it just leaves a big toothy circle on his leg where it pulled out a bunch of the hair and it was like a suction type thing and Kills it, but he's hobbling a little bit. But he's still trying to make his way through these damn spiders. He's just not a fan. But he's trying to get away from them. You know, he's he's killing lots of spiders. Like I said, there's spiders everywhere. So he's stabbing a spider because they're trying to attack a little bit too. But Darsh ranges to. They get up there and they get to the. They come to the end and they're. they're and you can hear there's a big thing going on and all the slaves are scattering into different tunnels and stuff. And Morgan, the other Minotaurs, are like, "Where do we go now?" And Darsh is like. Split up is your best bet. You know, if you you guys go together, but try not, you know, try to go different directions. Do your best. Head for the surface. He points them in the direction that they came from. He goes that way. There's, you know, dark dwarves. That's a whole nother situation, but. You know, you might be able to find something there. That's the only way we got down here. I don't know another way out. Um, but that's the best thing we can do. And they he quickly goes down the chest of holding, and they come up with some of their supplies, give them some food rations, and they give them a backpack with some stuff. And here, take this or some supplies and a couple water canteens. Do the best you can. And they're like, well, we appreciate you for getting us out. We will not forget you, Darsh Fohammer. That's his last name, Fohammer. I can't remember if I told you that. Darsh Fohammer. So... Our party's like, okay, now we got to get while the getting's good. We hate to say it this way. There's going to be a lot of drow searching for these people and all these people running off. It's going to help us escape as well. Did you get the artifact? Darsh goes, I don't know. I think I did. I think it's this ring. They spin the necklace. Sure enough, it points right at the ring. They're like, haha, good deal. They put that down in the chest of holding and they close it because, again, once it's down in there, it can't be sensed. They're like, all right, spin that necklace. Let's get it pointing upwards and the quickest way out of here. They spin that necklace, and it points down. And all of them just stop. And and literally figs like, for fuck's sakes, seriously? Because <laughs> he cusses a lot. I haven't used it much, but he he he, cur- he just goes into a tirade. They're supposed to be quiet right now, and they're like, hush, shush. And they're all angry too. But figs just kicking shit and just cussing up a storm. He's like, ah no. And they're like they're like. Down. There's another one. What are we going to do? we got to go down. Or maybe down is the quickest way up. It doesn't make any sense, but we've got to go down. So they quickly gather up their stuff, close the chest down for the moment. They go ahead and they put um, Moog in the chest and close it up. They know how much time he's got before they have to take him out again. Mercy quickly explains the magic headband. He goes, I'll tell you later, but the good news is I can see. I don't need light. Let's get the hell out of here. that's, That's convenient. Let's go. So they go tearing the direction that they need to go, and they proceed to go south. It's several days of travel before they finally feel comfortable enough that their pursuers are no longer chasing them. Um, they did their best to use the amulet as much as possible. The amulet has been leading them, not like I said in a straight direction, but it has, you know, it, it leads them usually the best path towards getting to where they need to go. So they're trusting in it that it's hopefully going to do that continuously. And sometimes it points this way, this way, down and they do their best. Fortunately, knowing which direction to go, they're not having to stop and try to decide when they get to tunnels and passageways and such. And there's, There's been some times where the pe- tunnels have gotten relatively small, where Darsh has almost had to crawl on his belly to get through. Darsh not enjoying that at all. But after several days, they, they finally feel like they may have lost their pursuers. Um, the hope is, of course, that whoever's chasing them thinks that they were with the other group, or at least trying to go up. <coughs> ah, excuse me. Um, and so they believe that they should be good at this point. And they, they can tell that they're still consistently going down. Now, again, just to give a, a time span, they were in the Underdark for weeks, if not a month, before they found the Dark Dwarf. It was another week, week and a half before they got to the Drow. I mean, they've been down here for close to two months at this point. And while they still have supplies and they've been able to fill their water, there's a bit of concern. If it takes that much time to get back out again we're going to have some problems. Um, we may not have enough supplies, and they are not coming across a lot of things that they would call edible. Um, fortunately, um, with even a little bit of food and water, um, there's a spell that Shadow can do, or no, Shadow, sorry, Willow can do, that will extend their food and, and nurture them, but it's not as good as normal food, and you couldn't live on it forever. Over a while, it is going, you're going to get weaker and weaker, but... She's, they start to supplement some of their meals with that just to so they don't run out of food and then have to live on that. They're trying to space it out because, again, they don't know how long they're going to be down here. <clears throat> but they're traveling and they keep going south. And it's Willow that notices it first. And she's realizing that as they're walking and they're using InfraVision, Mercy, of course, won't notice this at all because... She doesn't have information. What she sees is just like daylight to her. It's just like a normal day. She has to take it off when she sleeps because it's literally bright when her eyes are closed. But she keeps it pretty tucked in. She does not let it get far because this has made her way more comfortable and confident being underground. Um, But she she doesn't notice it, but Willow notices it first and points it out to the others. Fig soon after that, but the walls and the ground as they're going are starting to radiate a little bit of heat themselves. Um, not like a lot. Like they're not going to stumble across a lava pit. That's not going to happen. But what they are, but they are realizing that just everything is starting to give off the globe a bit of heat within the earth itself. And not they don't notice a, a major temperature change themselves, but the rock seems to have a heat in it. And that's odd. You would think, normally, the deeper you get, the colder it should get. That's just science. But it's not doing that. But on a world of the merge, where we have right now, science doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and even magic doesn't make a lot of sense in many situations. Because everything's topsy-turvy in the merge. But they're making their way down, and, and they're, they're sleeping, but they they realize that as they're traveling, they're not going down as much. It's, it's, it's almost like it's, it's sloping off, and now they're just kind of traveling forward. And it's been about six days since they left the Drow Kingdom when they come across the first sign. And that sign is a road. Excuse me. <laughs> Science! That is correct, Molten. <laughs> but it's literally a cobblestone path, like a road, like you would imagine just going down a street. Um there's no grass it's all rock and such that they're in but the tunnel that they're traveling in hasn't had as many branches and over the last several hours has had none and it's gotten slightly bigger as they're traveling it's literally becoming a bigger almost like a very large tunnel and it's becoming more smooth less none of it all looks natural of course well it's natural to me there's no tool marks fig is able to notice that very quickly there's no tool marks there's no signs of picks it's not Dwarves or elves or gnomes. Nobody's been tunneling here. This has formed the way it is, but it's more almost like a lava tube, if you're familiar with that. Lava tube, if you're not, I will go into a little more detail on that later. Science! But <laughs> they're making their way down, and this road is a cobble path, and it's going ahead of them. And they're like, okay, well, this is not normal. Who builds a road in a tunnel down in the ground? Nobody, because that makes no sense. But Maybe this is from before the merge. Maybe some, maybe some of the surface world is stuck down in underground as well. It's the only thing they can think of. They proceed up this road because there's nothing else that they can do. And as literally they're going up the road, as they're traveling, it starts to kind of wind, and they realize they're going up instead of down, at a very genuine very very gentle slope, very very little bit, but it is enough that it's noticeable. Again, when it comes to that stuff, Fig notices it very quickly. very good at slopes. Uh, if the ground is slanting. He's very good with direction. Even this deep underground, um, he struggles, but he ha- if he was to half a pick a direction, he would be the most likely to be able to say, okay, yes, I believe that's north, kind of thing. It's just a, an underground ability that dwarves and gnomes have a little bit of. Dwarves more so. But, they're traveling, and as they're traveling, if you will, they see they notice at first. When I say they, I mean everyone but Mercy. They see a bit of a glow in the distance. Well, now they stop for a minute. I tell Mercy there's a glow in the distance. She's like, okay. She takes her headband off. She goes, yes, there's a glow. That's light. Light is coming from up there. They don't hear any noises. They're very careful about it. They're like, should we send someone ahead? And they're like, well, I mean, at this point where we are, I don't think it's good to separate ourselves. Darsh Darsh agrees with Mercy. He goes, I I think so as well. We should stay together. Um, We don't know what's down here. Light normally means something. We are way too deep to be at the surface. It's just not possible. So light, we can only assume, means something alive. And if we are going to run into a problem, I'd rather us all be together. We can combine our abilities our strengths. We have the best chance of survival. The party agrees, and they move forward. Very often... Willow, and even Fig will defer to Mercy and Darsh. A lot of times it's Mercy and Darsh that are the more strategically mined. Um, Fig is a great warrior, by all means. He's totally competent, and he's good at, like, combat strategy. But when it comes to overall planning and such, uh, Mercy and Darsh, uh, out of the entire group of eight of them, um, are usually the ones that are get down to, okay, we're going to decide this. Um, and they usually see pretty well on the same lines. They, they're very in sync when it comes to their ideas. It's one reason that they've got along well, so well together. It's because they, they have the same type of mentality. Both raised in a family where honor was important. Both raised as warriors. Uh, both respect each other uh, in, the, in their ability to combat. Um, they're, they're very, very good together, in the, in both in combat and when it comes to like leadership roles. So very often, the two of them are the ones that make the big decisions for the party. Much to Zaren's distress, because Zaren, the little halfling mage, feels that he should be in charge because he's the most intelligent. And that's the last person anybody wants to put in charge. Uh, but... Uh, they continue on and they travel. And it takes about another 30 to 40 minutes before they get to the end of the tunnel. And the light is just getting brighter and brighter, which has actually been relatively convenient because their vision has been able to come out of the infrared spectrum. They've been able to adjust to the light comfortably. For Mercy, when she gets in light, it just looks the same. She doesn't notice much of a difference. Uh, Moog is just dumbfounded. He just thinks this is cool. But, you know, he, he, he stays close to Fig. He's always quiet when Figgy sells him to. <coughs> But, you know, whenever they're alone together, Fig's always trying to show him how to hit things with his hammer and trying to teach him to be quiet. He's trying to teach him, you know, stuff to help him survive. His goal is, of course, to still find a kingdom or something or a land where gully dwarves would be safe that he can, he can put him with his own people. But he definitely wants to make sure he can survive as much as he can. And as they get to the end of the tunnel, it literally opens into a vast cavern. But the cavern is fully alight. Now, the cavern has two-thirds of it. On the opposite end of where they are would be a castle. It's a keep of some kind, like a castle. And there's a wall that goes around it, and they can see the wall. But again, the keep rises above it. That's where they'll see it. And they also can see what looks like a giant, and I say giant. I'll talk about size in a minute, but a giant ball of quartz that's half in the wall and half enveloping the castle. Um, and the quartz is all jagged and stuff, but it's, it's very white, as quartz would be. And the quartz is what appears to be giving off the glow. Um, but it's massive. I mean, it's, it's almost the size of half the castle itself. So if you were to imagine that the cavern is a dome with a relatively flat bottom, a little bit on angle, but, you know, relatively flat. And then we had another ball that was quartz that was half in and half out. Does that make sense? Where it's half in and half out. So the you're, you're, It's like half a ball is coming out of the wall of the cavern and enveloping a chunk of the castle. Mostly the top part of it. Uh, on one end. Okay, well. Nothing else to do. Quick talk. Spin our necklace. Boom, points right at the castle. And they're like, well, this is what we came for. They don't looking around, they don't see other, any other ways in or out other than this, and they're like, that's going to be a long trip home, but let's get in here and, and get this. If something's in here, let's pick it up let's get the hell out of here. So they make their way towards the castle gates. And the castle gates are open. And they're big wooden gates. It's another thing that leads them to believe this clearly had to be from the surface. That's a lot of wood to be way down this deep. They haven't seen wood like this in weeks. And Brings a little bit of smile to Willow, being a druid. She's like, ah, nature. Finally, something that looks like surface. Um, But the gates are open, almost blown off. Almost, I would say blown off. Knocked off their hinges. They're just hanging haphazardly there. But you're able to get through them. They're big gates. And they get inside, and they're looking around. And Mercy quickly draws her weapon. Everybody else, as soon as Mercy does, draws theirs too. They don't know why Mercy pulled her weapon, but she's not going to do it unless it's important. And instinctually, Fig... Darsh and Mercy just form almost like a little triangle with Moog and Willow in the center. And they don't say anything, they don't make a noise. Every, Moog has no idea what's going on, but this happened before, so he knows he's supposed to hide behind Figgy, so he's tucking in behind Figgy. But everybody knows to be quiet. If Mercy needs to say something, she'll say it. And they wait a minute, and Mercy's like, I saw something move up high. They all carefully look up. They don't see anything move. And Darsh goes, Did you see what it was? And she's like, No, but it was big. I saw it only out of the corner of my eye. And it was gone quickly. But there's something in here. Now they're on alert. I'm like, Okay. And they begin to talk. Should we put Moog in the chest? He might be safer in there. And they're like, Yeah, but if something happens to us, he's going to have a really bad death suffocating in a chest. We really don't want that to happen. So. They try not to put him in there. you think that's when you most want to put him in there for combat, but they're realistic. They could fail. Nobody wants to die in a chest, and a thousand years from now, somebody finds a chest with a little gully door skeleton in it. That would be sad. So they just keep Moog carefully, and they start making their way through, but they have their weapons out now. And Figgy Figgy has his hammer out, so Moog has his hammer out. He's in the pot, he has a metal pot that keeps sliding over his eyes, and he pulls it back, so he knows serious stuff's going down. He's got to be ready to help Figgy at a moment's notice but uh, they begin waken, continuing up to the gates, and they get through the gates and they slide through, because again, they're, they're pretty much easy to get through. You can pull wagons through there, and they're just hanging off the side. So I say slide through, they're carefully going through, looking for traps. They don't see anything. Sadly, they don't have anybody who can find traps. They can find magic traps. Willow casts to spell, see if she can find any magical auras. Nothing is coming from their immediate vicinity, but she can clearly look at that giant quartz ball and know that's not normal. They start making their way up again, and again, they hear this time something, and they don't—they can't see what it was, but they all see a big silhouette, kind of fly behind a piece of rock outcropping. Like, okay, when I say big, um, give an example: grizzly bear, size of a grizzly bear. If you ever seen a movie with a giant brown grizzly bear, a big bear-like shape, but like not running, flying. So, like, imagine a flying grizzly bear shape. It's not a flying grizzly bear. I don't want to break your hearts with that. Let me tell you that now. It's not a flying grizzly bear. I'm just giving you an example. So the, they're like, okay, something's up there. We know it is. Maybe we need to get inside. And they try to move a little bit quicker through the gates towards the keep itself. Well, now the thing is flying back out again and coming right at them. And they're looking up, and they can see that it's not a grizzly bear shape, but it's more almost like a giant gorilla. Gorillas are big normally imagine that. And while it's a gorilla, it doesn't have the quite long arms, short legs. It's a little bit more humanoid in shape, but its head is very gorilla-like, with big fangs overhang it, and it has big bat-like wings. And its feet are very gorilla-like, and they've got huge talons on its feet and on its hands, but it has in its hand a sword. So, clearly, it's not a complete animal. It has some type of weapon-using ability. And that sword is probably bigger than Fig. It's big. And the thing... Let's out a primal scream, and they just scatter towards the keep. Well, not scatter, they run towards the keep. They're not obviously abandoning each other. Darsh again is in the rear, him and Mercy with their swords. At This time, normally they'd be at the front, but they're in the rear with their shields, hoping they, can, they have to slow it down, giving time for the Moog and Fig with the smaller legs going a little bit slower to get into the keep. And they, they, get, to the, they get into the keep almost there when the thing, as it's flying towards them, because it's not moving real fast. It doesn't look like it's in a hurry, but it swipes its hand like this, and as it swipes its hand up, flame bursts out of the ground behind the group, like a wave, and starts washing towards them. Like a tidal wave of fire. This is clearly not good. Fig and Moog manage to jump inside with Willow. Darsh and Mercy are like, we've got to get in here as well. They try to get into the keep to close the door, but. Darsh is through. Mercy's next. Normally, you know, they're, they're all about equivalents. Not not a lady's first. Darsh got there first. Darsh is going to go in first. Mercy, with her larger shield. Her shield's a little bit larger than Darsh's. Because <coughs> most of the time, Darsh will fight two-handed. But he does have a small buckler if he needs it. Mercy will actually use a, a regular small or medium shield. Currently, she's using a small shield with her uh, Morningstar. She braces it as best she can as the flame kind of hits her and she goes falling back through the door herself. Now, she cries out in pain, because the the fires, literally, she starts to catch on fire. But she does make it inside the door. And they start patting the fire out on her, and and luckily, our druid friend, Willow, does have some healing spells, and is able to quickly down and and heal her somewhat. If Artemis had been here, could probably heal her up good as new. But Willow has not quite as strong healing abilities. She has some. She does what she can. She manages to stop the pain, and Manage the skin to heal over, but it does look a little scarred in places on her legs. <clears throat> oh, and I forgot to mention, on the back of Darsh's leg, where that spidery thing was, there's a, she healed him there too, but there's like a, a circle space where hair doesn't grow now. It's like a scar on the back of his leg. That's about, it's about that big around, so like a small plate, if you will. Um, but more oval shape, where the mouth was gripped on him. forgot to mention that. But she did heal, heal that as best she could, but hair doesn't really grow there, and only little small patches. Because he's hairy legs, he's meant mentor. Uh but they managed to heal her up as best they can. Some of her gear was damaged, and some of the metal even on her her uh metal leg plates for her, her armor, even were slightly melted. So she had to chuck some of those. And they can they can hear the things smacking against the keep in certain places. Like obviously not trying to get at them. But you can hear her making noises and smacking things, and they're like, We've we've got to get this thing either dead, or we've got to find what we need and get out of here, but I don't know how we're going to make it all the way back out to that passageway with that thing above us, especially if it can throw fire like that. And it didn't throw fire, mind you. The fire came up from the ground. It was clearly a spell of some kind. Whatever it is, is relatively powerful, obviously. They don't know what it is, though. If you play d you might have guessed by now, but we'll see. So... They're like, we have to get up in the keep. We have to find this. They quickly grab your necklace. Spin the necklace. The necklace shows that it's up higher. It's somewhere up in one of the top parts of the keep. We have to make our way up there. So they start going through, and as they're going up some stairs trying to get to an upper level, part of the wall smashes through. And the arm of the creature comes through, like fist, and tries to grab them. They manage to not be grabbed by it. <clears throat> the wall's relatively thick. It was pretty strong. But it does collapse the stairs partway. And now Moog and Willow are in the bottom part of the stairs and our three warriors are at the top. And they can't jump that far and they're like, we'll jump down to you. And and, and Willow's like, no, you keep going, we'll go around. There's another set of stairs we saw at the other side. We'll catch up. And Mercy's like, we don't need to split up right now. We don't have any choice. That thing's arm keeps coming through, and they hear another smash like it's trying to break through again. They can't stay on this narrow stairs. They can't fight the thing. So much to their dismay, three warriors have to keep running upstairs. They get to the top, and if you've ever seen a castle... (laughs) <laughs> or pictures of a castle. You know, there's what the ramparts. There's the top part of the castle, the, almost like a, a walkway, if you will, that can sometimes connect towers. And that's very much what you see here. It's a, it's a wide walkway where Darsh and Mercy could very easily walk side by side. A little bit hard for all three of them, um, but they could walk side by side, and it goes a distance over towards the other tower. But the other tower is mostly encased in that quartz, the door to it is half in case they can literally see the door that you might be able to squeeze through part of it, and they're like looking and they don't see the th- they're looking out their door because they're at the top and they don't see the flying ape wing creature thing. We'll just call it the monster. They don't see the monster, but they're like we have to get across. That's the only place to go, and they're looking around for Willow and they're looking around for Moog, and they're like we don't see them, but maybe that's better if they're down in the castle. It's going to be harder to get them up here. We're going to be almost like easy pickings. And Darsh is like, I'll go first. He goes, Of all of us, I'm the fastest. I'll see if I can get across. If I can, then at least we have an idea. Maybe I can help the rest of you get over here. They're like, Okay, cool. Darsh is going to go first. Fig will go next because he's the slowest of the three of them. And Mercy's going to come last because she can always try to reach in and scoop up if she needs to. But Darsh is like, If the thing pops out, maybe I've got the best chance against it at the beginning. So he goes running across as quickly as he can. And he makes it all the way across to the door, but he realizes the door is literally half encased in that quartz. He doesn't think he's going to be able to squeeze through the doorway. His horns and such, literally, it's just too big for him to fit through. Everybody else will probably fit, but he's going to have a hard time getting in there. And he can't see much inside because it's dark. He can't use information. When everything's well lit up out here, it's dark inside. So he doesn't see, but a few silhouettes. looks like some stairs, maybe. So he starts... He doesn't see the monster at all, so he starts waving to Fig, and Fig starts coming along. Fig's about halfway across before the monster comes swooping up from the base of the wall. Because you're running, again, you imagine your rampart's there. You can't really see over and down. It literally just comes up with a hand and pulls itself up. And the thing is bigger than even Darsh. Okay? It's probably about 10 to 11 feet tall. It's huge. It comes up with its big fist and it pulls its big sword up and it just lifts itself up on top. And, and here's Fig the size of its hand in front of him with his warhammer. And he's like, damn. Without a hesitation, Mercy comes running out and Darsh comes running back as well. They're not going to leave Fig there to himself. There's no way he's going to be able to handle that alone. In fact, the three of them together probably can't handle it. But they're going to do what they can. So in Dungeons & Dragons' turn, everybody rolled for initiative. <laughs> so, combat began. Basically, it was a fight scene. I'm going to just kind of breeze over it. It's hard to describe the combat in general, but you know, it's one of those things where the, the creature, while big and intelligent, I mean, I want to stress that it's intelligent, it's wielding a weapon. It's not a, an animal just doing wild thrashes. It's literally attacking with, with, with confidence and with skill. But it is really big, um, and it is slower than them. And so, they are a lot of times able to dodge its attacks. But very often, in order to dodge its attack, they're going to have to skip attacking themselves. And that's the issue that they run into. They can attack it, but if they do, they're leaving themselves open to getting hit. And so it really becomes almost a dance of, can I get a hit in and get it away? Can I get a hit in and get away? You know, Darsh at this point is wielding two swords. He's because he can do that. Both he and Shadow are, are able to dual wield. Mercy is using her morning star, which in this situation it's it does damage, but something gets that big, it's not as good as the bladed weapon. So very, very quickly, she just literally drops her morning star and pulls her sword out. She needs something bladed. Fig only has his hammer, and he's doing his best to try to, when he does make an attack, to make an attack at the thing's feet or hands. That's because it's literally hanging on to the side of the castle with one hand and its feet are dug in while it's swinging with its one sword because it's not enough room for it up on the ramparts. It's just too big. So it's swinging back and forth and they managed to get some good hits in. They do some relatively decent damage to it, but the thing is massive and it's just way too powerful. And then, you know, there, I think it was, yes, it was Fig that went down first, because that's to be, he's the smallest, he has the hardest, he's, he's the hardest to hit, actually, because he's smaller, but he's also slower, and he was trying to get in on, on the foot, because he's trying to knock the foot loose, or even trying to, if I remember correctly, he was trying to break the rock, so that maybe the thing's foot would slide, it would fall, and they may have a chance to get back inside, but he wasn't successful, and the thing manages to literally get a good cut on him, and it cuts him pretty bad. And both Darsh and Mercy have taken several hits as well, though not as bad as this, but but Fig falls down with quite a big cut across it, just between his chest and stomach. It's a slash across, it's not a pierce. So while it's a deep cut and he's clearly bleeding, uh, it's not like a piercing through the heart, anything like that. But he does fall down, grasping his own wound. And in that position, it's going to be super easy for Monster to basically just squish him. And so... Mercy and Darsh are like, okay, we gotta try and stand in front of him now to protect him, but that makes it harder for them to be able to dodge themselves. And the thing gets a couple decent hits on them as well. One second. And then it's at that at that moment that they they hear they hear a scream. And I want to begin by saying, hopefully you don't think this is too corny, but it was very cool in the moment. In that moment you hear a loud scream from behind them. And Mercy manages to quickly glance back and across the way on one of the other spires, because again, there's four spires in this castle, one of them mostly involved by Crystal, the one they're in. And the way across from them, they see because it's not that far, you can see pretty well, what appears to be a machine that looks like a giant crossbow. If you have any familiarity with this type of weapon, it's called a Ballista and is very, very commonly found on different types of castles as an anti-siege weapon. More commonly found on ships and boats, but it can be found on a castle as well, along with things like catapults and such. But in this situation, it's a ballista. And underneath the front of it is Willow holding it up, and with everything she's got. And when I say she's holding it up, she's holding it up with her staff. She's cast a spell so that her staff is grown in length and grown wider like vines and it's twisted around the front of the ballista and it's what's holding the front up because normally it would take several people or turning a wheel to aim it and they don't have that and sitting on the very top of it is, is Moog by a big lever and all he does and, and Mercy looks and Darsh looks and the monster looks and for just a brief second they're all like, what the hell is this? And, and all you can hear is Moog smile and say, "Hiya, bunk. And he throws himself backwards, grasping onto the little handle, and the ballista fires literally a tree-like arrow. A huge stump-like thing. Hurtling forward. Now, in a perfect world, it would have pierced the creature through the heart, and it would have died. Willow and Moog are not good at aiming. <laughs> but what it does do is go very through a shoulder almost separating one of its arms. So a huge gash through the creature. And the creature, caught off guard, falls backwards because as it goes through the sh- through that, it doesn't rip the wing but it does snag a bit where the where the wing would attach to its back into its shoulder. And it hurts the muscle. It can't catch itself and it falls down. Now A creature of that size falling off the castle, that'd be like a regular person falling 10 or 12 feet. might hurt a little bit, it's probably not going to kill you unless you land on your head. It didn't kill this thing, but it did seriously injure it a lot, and it can't use its wings to fly, and that arm is about useless. The creature in rage swings up one more time to try to smash at the top of the keep, but it can't reach it and starts making its way away from the keep, because again, when I say this is a cavern in a keep, it's not perfectly square, it's jagged, and it makes its way out and around, kind of behind the wall, out behind the wall gate they came in. It pulls itself over that wall, which isn't as high, <clears throat> and it's kind of like it's hiding over there to nurse its wounds. Now, in this situation, of course, they don't know how long it's going to take. Can that thing heal itself? Does It, have, it has magic. Can it do that? We don't know. We need to do something to get out of here. Willow And with Moog in tow, comes running around the ramparts from the other side because they'd come up the opposite end. And they come running over, and Willow looks at Fig and he says, I have to heal him, but we can't do it here. We've got to get inside. They grab everybody and they start running towards the courts, the direction they're going. They get there, and Darcy's like, Dang it, I can't get inside. I'm too big. I'll guard the door if I see it start to move, I'll try to go hide in one of the other things. They don't like it, but Darsh just clearly can't fit through there. So Mercy goes in first, because she doesn't know if there's anything inside. This thing could not be alone. So she goes inside, because with her thing, she can see perfectly fine in a dark space, in not a dark space. And she goes inside, and it's just a room. Clearly. Not a problem. But it's a big room, but she doesn't see anything major. Just the quartz enveloping half the room. So Willow, who's helping supporting Fig, he's, he's just barely able to walk. He's half out of it because he's bleeding a lot. And Moog, who's trying to help carry, him, put, carry as much weight as he could, which is actually pretty useful in that situation. He was help, happy to help him, help him walk. or helping Fig in. And as soon as Willow goes to step through the door, the necklace that Zoltan gave her flashes a bit of light. And the quartz recedes a little bit. And they're able to clearly walk through the door. They yell it to Darsh, who sees this as well and is able to now, he has to duck because he's a big guy, but now he's able to get in, in the doorway. There's no door there at this point. The door's fallen off and it's sitting on the ground outside of that rampart, but he's able to, you know, get in through the doorway, at least into the room. <clears throat> and they get Fig over in the corner away from this line of sight. Darsh is still at the door watching to see if anything's coming. Uh, Moog is just sitting there holding Fig's hand and just rubbing his hand, because that's what he saw his mom do once when he was little, because he doesn't know what else to do, so he's just rubbing Fig's hand, because that made him feel better. So maybe it'll help for Figgy, too. And Artemis uses the last of her healing spells, well, not the last of she uses several healing spells, to heal Fig to the point that he'll be stable. But he's still injured. Um, she'd used a decent amount of spells on Mercy to begin with. And she's only got one, like, one small healing spells left. And she goes, I, I need to hang on to it just in case something else happens. If not, I can always use it on him. And he's stable now. We just He just needs to go slow, and he definitely doesn't need to jump into combat. So now they're in this room. And they're like, well, what do we do now? If we go out there, that thing's out there. How are we going to escape? I don't know. Let's see if we can find another way out. So they start looking around the room. And Mercy walks over to the quartz. And as she's looking at the quartz wall, which it's is, it definitely seems more translucent than it should be. Quartz, being a white rock, isn't really see through. But this one, when she gets closer, can see it's very, almost like a, a very stained glass. Tapping it with her weapon, because she grabbed her morning star, she taps it, it's solid. You know, it's not chipping off like glass, but it feels more like glass. It looks almost like quartz from a distance, but up close it's definitely not quartz. And she can almost make out like weird shapes in the rest of the room. Like there might have been a table over there, or you know, maybe that's a chair on its side over there. It's hard to see because it's just so opaque or opaque, depending on how you pronounce that, and and, and and foggy through the image. She calls to Willow. She's like, Willow, can you see your visions a little bit better than mine? Can you see anything in here? It's almost like there's shapes. And Willow comes up, and as she gets closer, again, the quartz recedes from the Imelich. And when I say it recedes, it almost like it melts into liquid. Uh, Let's just say Terminator 2 type kind of stuff. It it doesn't like liquid pour on the ground, but it kind of melts in upon itself. And the room clears up. Just a little bit. Not the whole thing doesn't go flying away, but it opens up a little bit. And both of them are shocked, because sticking out of the quartz is a hand. And they're like, oh, wow, something died in here. That's horrible. She goes up again, trying to see if the amulet will make the quartz recede anymore, and it doesn't. And they're like, okay, well, whatever it is, you know, it, it, the crystal's pretty well preserved it because the hand, well, kind of bluish, is, you know, it's not decaying or anything. And then one of the fingers twitches. Well, Willow jumps back. That's kind of freaky. Mercy immediately draws her weapon. Here's a hand wiggling. <laughs> that doesn't happen. But the thing moved just a little bit, then stops. Something in there is alive. And the hand looks humanoid. So she, without anything else to do, starts taking her Morningstar and seeing if she can start smack it. Darsh hears the noise and comes over and goes, what's going on? They point the hand and say, something in there is alive. Darce is like, that's not cool. So he goes and he gets Fig's hammer, because he doesn't really carry any blunt weapons. Darst the blade guy. It's not going to do much here. He gets his hammer, and he starts smacking it. His strength, combined with, with the hammer of Fig's, very quickly they can see starting to crack spiderweb. And he starts bashing. And while he's doing that, Mercy will smash in between. So they're kind of going back and forth on it. Dar's ham with, with Fig's hammer, big chunks of it start falling off. And there's a loud cracking noise. And part of the quartz just splits and kind of falls off. When I say a piece, imagine... A piece the size of... Oh, I don't know. Say a small Volkswagen. Like a big chunk cracks and falls towards them a little bit. And shatters around the hand. And inside they can see the silhouette of a person. Like he's encased. He's he's now clear. Like you could reach in and touch him. But he's like laying in a bed of the quartz, And he's an armored humanoid. He's got long hair on his face. Got a long beard. Long hair. And... The color starts to go from blue back to a human color. He's human; they can see this. But he, as he gets normal-looking again, as his skin back normal, blood starts to flow from a wound in his stomach and chest. Instinctually, Willow steps forward and places her hands on the wound and casts her last healing spell, staunching the blood and healing the wound. He's very seriously injured. It's not going to, you know, he's going to need more healing than this, but it bought him some time. She may have the chance to keep him alive until she, her spells, if you're not familiar, priest spells recoup each day after hours of prayer, like a wizard studies. So a priest has to study that she goes, if we can keep him alive through the night, tomorrow I will do my best. I will ask for blessings from my God to be able to heal this person back. And... They try, They they pull him out of the quartz and they lay him down. He's clearly unconscious. But while they're standing there, you know, Mercy's looking and you know, looks, looks back at the quartz and she walks over and she sees that next to where he was is another crack in the quartz with an opening the other way. So the other side of the quartz, she can see through it, and there's this shape in that side of the quartz of what would be another humanoid shape. Imagine if you were to pull an action figure out of a plastic action figure toy. You know, there's that little bed that they lay in that's kind of their body shape. It's a lot like that. It's where another body was laying in there at some point. And she can see marks of dried blood on the ground. And then something glinting down in the pieces of the quartz that's all down there. She reaches down and knocks the things away. And she pulls out a lance, a footman's lance, a little bit longer than a spear. Still got some dried blood on it. And Willow's like, Mercy, come look at this. Looking at this, looking at the metal, she's like, I believe this is the artifact we came to find. I mean, she's looking at it. It has all the markings. And I say, there's no markings on it. It has all of the designs that would match the other things that they have. They all have very common-looking traits and styles of their making. She comes rushing over to see what Willow says. I mean, walking quickly. And Willow says, look at this. And on the man who's laying on the ground, whose hair's on my own, they point at the... She's, she'd wiped away the blood from his armor, and there was a print on the chest of his armor. And it was a quarter moon with fire in it. And that's, I think, where we're going to call it a day. We've been streaming now for about two hours and five minutes. And I like to try to keep it about this long, especially for the audio versions of this that I'm going to put up on iTunes. Um, So where we're going to end this one. They've just found another artifact, a lance. If you've seen any of my previous videos or listened to any of the earlier streams, uh, you may have an idea of who this person is and what we just found. Uh, We'll get into the specifics a little bit later in next week's episode. Um, But maybe... We'll see, uh, but it's a pretty. It was a pretty big hook. This is when we played the game, when we we're actually playing this part of the D and D story. That's where I ended the session as well, and boy were they not happy with me. <laughs> they were like, "What? No! What about? Um, we'll find out next time." Hey, what's it? Oh, next time. So uh, it was just one of those things where yes, we were going to end it, but. Um, if this is the first time you've joined the stream, thank you very much for coming by. I appreciate everybody who's been watching and clicking like. I've got a bunch of people who've been liking, got some new followers and subscribers. Uh, thank you. If you haven't yet, please be sure to click like on the video if you enjoyed the stream today. But more importantly, remember to hit that subscribe button. Uh, that way you can see all my videos, tutorials as they come out. Uh, you can also go to my website, onlydraven.com, where you can find links to my streaming schedule, um, resources like the pictures of the characters. If you were to go there, you look under the characters tab, you would see the picture of a character that I haven't introduced yet that we might see next week. A little bit of a tease there. Something interesting. Um, But you'll also find links to all my other videos and such, the characters for Merge World stuff. And as of this week, Merge World is now also on iTunes as a podcast. So if you like audio, you'd like to be able to listen to this again, or any of the older episodes, the first four episodes of this Uh, series is already up on there. Just do a search for Merged Worlds, all one word. It'll pull it up. Uh, It's free, of course. You can subscribe if you enjoy that stream and you want to give it a rating. I'd appreciate it, but um, of course, only if you like it. Um, But definitely you can subscribe to that to get those. This episode should be up there tomorrow. I try to put it up on the Monday after. Uh, These streams are every two weeks. uh, So the Audio version should come out every two weeks the day after the video. I'm going to answer a question here real quick. Uh, Molten Snow asked, Hey Draven, what's your favorite game, video, or board? Uh, Of course, favorite game of all time is Dungeons & Dragons. Obviously. that has been a big part of my life. Favorite board game is going to be Risk. I love Risk. Followed by a game called Atmosphere. If you've never played Atmosphere, that's really good. Uh, my wife just got me a new game for Christmas because uh, I have a lot of board games and I'd like to do some video stuff of playing board games. If that's something you're interested in, throw it down there. I'd, I'd love to know. Uh, she got me a video uh, board game called Fake News, which is a lot of fun where you read off a true news fact and several fake news facts, and everybody has to guess which one is the, is the true one and which one is not. It's 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 a lot of fun. So um, I like those video game favorite video game of all time uh, is going to be Final Fantasy VIII followed immediately probably by the original Baldur's Gate on PC, um, and then Diablo 1, although I, was, I played World of Warcraft for many, many years. That's a big one, but I, I'm hard to classify that into video games. <laughs> All right. And thank you very much, everybody, for watching. I appreciate it. Um, it's been a great stream, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and call this one there. Thank you all very much for watching. Thank you again for um, all of my subscribers and followers, and also for my members. I forgot to mention, we had a new member. Uh, someone joined on the membership program yesterday. Uh, we'll talk about that on tomorrow's uh, gaming stream. Tomorrow's stream will be a little, a little bit earlier in the day uh, because of my wife's work schedule. So I'll be streaming probably some Jackbox at around 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if you like that, swing on by. Uh, But that's going to do us for this stream again. Thank you all so very much for coming by and and giving me the opportunity to share this story, which is an important part of my life, um, and I appreciate that opportunity. So, we're going to call that a day. Thank you all so very much. I hope you all have yourselves a wonderful day.